Father, thank you for your creativity here. We have had a beautiful spring day uh, a couple days before, just rain, 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 but we got to have both. And they both come from your hand. Uh, you are such a creative God. Uh, you are the one who, who not only created the earth, but you sustained the earth. You're the one who devised the seasons. Uh, you came up with this. And, and, and we marvel at, at each season, uh, the uniqueness of it all. And in so many ways, the seasons of, of uh, creation are really a metaphor for the seasons of our lives. Um, that's really, really true. Uh, every day of our lives, you sustain the earth, you sustain us. Every day you give us breath, we couldn't breathe without you. Paul told the pagan philosophers in Athens that in Acts 17. He said, in, in him, <clears throat> we live and move and exist. He gives to all men breath. We are so dependent on you, and uh, most of the time, we're, we're not aware of it. We're just going through life, uh, getting, getting our work done, uh, checking off the list that seems like every time we check five things off, there are ten more being, being uh, lined up behind them. Life is busy and life is full. Uh, it, it's good for us. Um, it's good for us to, to, to simply be still and take a few minutes and, and know that you are God. We're able to work because you give us the strength to work. You give us the physical ability to work. You give us the mental capacity to work. Um, we have guys in here that are out of work right now. And that's so hard on a man to be out of work because we want to be productive. Yet at the same time, we know that that's kind of a part of the seasons of life as well because um, when we're out of work, we feel like we're not productive. When we're out of work, we feel like we're not fruitful. I, I, I remember someone years ago pointing out that if you drive through Washington State, which is known for the apples, if you drive through those orchards in the middle of winter, You'd never in a million years guess those trees are apple trees. Because there's no apples. There are no buds. There are no green leaves. They look as dead as a doornail. They are as unproductive as they possibly could be on the surface. But underneath, underneath, the surface, underneath the bark, there are amazing things going on. And within just a few months, there'll be beautiful fruit. Even, even as we look at fruit trees, we see a metaphor of our lives. A, a fruit tree is not fruitful 12 months out of the year. 
There are times when fruit trees go dormant. And there are times when you set us aside and we feel dormant. We feel unproductive. We feel like we're not accomplishing anything. But oftentimes in those times of unemployment or there is a sickness that sets us aside for a while or something in life that to us is a setback oftentimes and Lord, those are for seasons. That's, that's a season. It doesn't last forever. But so often you do deep work underneath the surface in our lives during those times when we are not productive, yet we want to be. So we thank you for all of life. We thank you for the seasons of life. We have men in every season of life here. But uh, in every season of life, you are Lord of life. You are the sustainer and the giver and the provider. Now tonight we ask, that you will instruct us, that you'll teach us out of your word. You help us to see, we ask, the big picture tonight of our lives and what you're doing. That's our prayer. Give us perspective. In the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We've been working through this study based on the book I did 25 years ago called Point Man. If you've been here, you've heard me do this spiel before to kind of explain everything, but I, I did this book 25 years ago uh, to men who are husbands, fathers. Uh, it applies to single guys who, who would be husbands and fathers. And it was simply a book about spiritual leadership. When, when we come to know Christ, uh, our lives change. We, we know that everything changes. Um, up until then, we have, we're, we're, we're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. But when Christ um, calls us and pulls us, um, and when he makes us spiritually alive, he, he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the Bible says Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. But then there's a day when you suddenly see it. And not only you see it, but you want it. And, 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 and suddenly what was not attractive and what, quite frankly, in, some, in many cases was repulsive, this Christianity stuff, this Jesus stuff, you wanted nothing to do with. And as God sovereignly works in your life and if you will, under the surface and, and is bringing about a change of heart, what, what happens is suddenly this is something you want. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher and apologist uh, who has written so many wonderful works, um, C.S. Lewis was a longtime atheist. Uh, as he was teaching at Oxford, he became part of a group that would meet at a pub each week, and some of these men were Christians, and they met because they were all in the literary world, or wanted to be. Um, none of, they, they hadn't done much at that point, but they were meeting and they would read their stuff one to another, and um, uh, interesting group. One of the men in that group, um, why is this happening to me the last few weeks? Just as I'm getting ready to give the name. Tolkien. Tolkien. Tolkien was in that group, uh, who wrote um, War and Peace. Um, I don't know what he wrote. He wrote Hebrews 14. There you go. That's what he wrote. 
<laughs> that was good. That was really good. I like that. So here's Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and they're in the same group. And Tolkien's a Christian. Lewis, he really doesn't want anything to do with it. But, you know, they keep meeting, and there's friends, and there's some other guys in the group, and they're going, and, and, you know, they'll have conversations about the Lord and God, and Lewis is having none of it. This is going on for years. And uh, as C.S. Lewis described it, his conversion, he was with his brother, and his brother had a motorcycle with a sidecar, and they're just going into town. And in his words, he said, all I can tell you is this. When I got in the sidecar with my brother to go into town, I didn't believe. Ten minutes later, when I got out of the sidecar, I believed. Well, what happened? The Spirit of God worked. The wind blows where it will. And he was born again, and he was converted. Uh, this is what the Lord does. You, you, it, someone can seem so far off, oh, I prayed for years, they'll never come. You don't know that. You don't know how God's going to work. You came. There are people who prayed for you and thought you'd never come, and here you are, and you got a big Bible with notes, and you're kind of boring now. <laughs> you're not the guy you used to be. Why? Well, because now you see life through a different lens. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And when Christ comes into our lives, we begin to see everything. I mean, suddenly our eyes are open, and we're, and we're seeing things that we never have seen before, and we look at life differently, and we take our responsibilities in a whole different way as a husband, as a father. We get serious about life, not that we're just walking around serious with scowls on our face, but we want, we want our lives to count, and we're not just living for today or for a bigger house or a bigger car or any of that. I mean, we want to provide, and we should provide, but that's not our God anymore. Jesus is our God. And now we have a perspective, not about getting as much as we can on this earth, as, as Malcolm Forbes said, uh, his great line, he who dies with the most toys wins. But see, the problem with that is you die. <laughs> that, that's the problem with that. You got all the toys, but you're going to die, and you can't take toys with you. Um, and see, men don't need toys. Men need to have an influence. Men need to leave a legacy. Men need to outlive themselves by how they live during their stretch on the earth. And see, this all happens when the Lord comes into our lives and changes us. Um, so Point Man was about what happens when a guy comes to Christ and then suddenly is interested in things he was never interested in before, which is namely, well, I want to give spiritual influence to my family. Before we were a Christian, we're not thinking about that. But suddenly we're thinking about it. How, how am I a better husband? How am I a better dad? How can I grow in, in, in maturity in Christ? And so we, I, I just broke it down. So I got to the end of the book, and last chapter, summary chapter, and I pretty much covered the book. Um, I called, uh, the last chapter I called, uh, just simply I called it Rock and Roll Model. And um, so here I am. We've got, we've got tonight and then four more sessions, and I'm at the end of this, and I've been thinking, all right, so what do I do for the next four weeks? And I've been pondering this, let me tell you what I want to do. Um, 
Tonight I want to talk about rock and roll model. That's kind of how I ended the book, and I'm going to mention that tonight. But when I, got the, when I was done with the book, um, it, it's interesting because, you know, you finish a big project like that, and you're kind of worn out, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, and you say, man, I'll never write another book again. It's sort of like a woman just coming out of the living room saying, I'll never have another child again. You know, and she will. And uh, Well, anyway, eight years, nine years later, I did another book called Anchorman. And really what I did in Anchorman was that uh, it was really the follow-up to Point Man. And there was stuff in there that I just couldn't put in Point Man. But when I did Rock and Roll Model, that's how I ended Point Man. But you see, all that did was set up Anchorman eight years later. And when I started, when I did Anchorman... Uh, really, that last chapter, Rock and Roll Model, uh, well, what that was, it was sort of a set, and Anchorman was the next spike. So what I want to do tonight is, because we got four more weeks after this, instead of doing something completely different, I just kind of want to keep going with this. Because it, what, what I did in Anchorman, the whole concept of Anchorman, the subtitle, was how a man can anchor his family in Christ for the next hundred years. That was the concept. And we tend not to think of the next hundred years. Uh, as men, in our culture, we think, about, um, we think about where we are in life, and so much of our lives we hear about retirement. Retirement, retirement, are you saving enough money for retirement? And, uh, you know, that's just constant. Uh, you watch football or baseball, and it seems like there are only two kinds of commercials. There's either beer, beer commercials uh, or there's, um, you know, insurance company, uh, financial planning commercials. You know, are you getting enough to drink? Are you a drunkard? Do you vomit all over yourself? Because that's the joy of life. Isn't that pretty much what they're telling us? You remember that old beer commercial? where the guys are fishing on the Snake River. The beer commercials are brilliant. The guys are fishing on the Snake River. This was years ago. And, and the guys, you know, they're, it's just great. You know, you just fly out. He's got a buddy up to the creek, you know, and everybody, hey. And then at night, they're on the campfire. And they're all, you know, drinking their, their beer. And one of the guys looks at the other guy, and he goes, hey, guys, yeah, yeah. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> really? Really. Actually, it does. Actually, it does. So you got the beer commercials, and then the other commercials, you're trying to enjoy life and relax and not worry about work, and then they say, are you retiring enough? And it shows some guy who's 92, who looks like he's 38, and he's got a wife who looks like she's 27, and she's 89, and they're just in perfect shape, and I mean, and you know, and they live on this lake and everything, and they put enough money away, and they just live stress-free. That's a crock. <laughs> Is that not a crock? But see, they assume you're drinking enough beer watching the game that you believe it. <laughs> now, we need to think about financial planning and all that, of course, but here's the deal. You're going to die, and then what? 
So, um, here we go. I knew I was missing something. Uh, I'm going to give you... Um, I'm going to give you four basic principles tonight about being a Christian man. Um, you, can, you, you can use whatever term you want, but being a man who's following Christ. And here's the first one. So I'm kind of I'm wrapping up the concepts we've hit in Point Man, and then we're going to fill in some spaces in the next four weeks. So here's four key thoughts about being a Christian man. And the first one is this. When a man gets serious about Christ, everything changes. Not when a man gets serious about church, because so many of us have been raised in church. This is the Bible Belt. You know, your grandpa was a preacher and all of that. Well, it's, I mean, it's great heritage. But... Uh, each man has got to do business with the Lord. And each man has to come to terms with his own relationship with Christ. And as I said earlier, when, a, when, when the Lord pulls us in and we realize our need of Christ and we cry out to him, and, and oftentimes it's because we hit a ditch. We've had our plans and our dreams and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and... Um, you know, a lot of times what we thought was going to happen doesn't happen, and we find ourselves in a place of failure. We find our place, ourselves in a place of bitter disappointment, and really we have nowhere else to go, and we cry out to the Lord, and then he comes in, and he saves us. This is what, He's the Savior, and, and we trust in him alone. We're done with our own resources we realize how desperately we need him in our lives. We need to be forgiven of our sin, and he's the only one who can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Remember when, when the, the man who was the paralytic, there was such a crowd, they wanted him to see Jesus, and they couldn't get in. And his buddies had, you know, were carrying him in, and they couldn't get through the crowds. So what do they do? They went up on the, they went up on the roof. And uh, they, they just they pulled out the chainsaw or whatever they had, and they just started, you know, they just started busting through the roof. And they, and they let him down. And, uh, and Jesus, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And, of course, you know, the bureaucrats were there. You know, the... Uh, government bureaucrats with the uh, religious thought police. So, well, who are you to forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. Yeah, that's right. So get up and walk. Only God can do that. If he can do that, get up and walk, he can forgive sin. This is what Jesus does. He forgives sin completely, totally, fully. We're coming up on Easter. Easter is all about the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. And some of you guys um, are part of different churches. Uh, if you're in a church and on Easter, whoever's preaching says something like, oh, the resurrection of Christ, 
well, it wasn't a literal resurrection, get up and leave. And, and, and go to the buffet early. <laughs> and beat the crowds, because it'll do you more good than to sit there and listen to that nonsense. Because here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. It seems like I quote this about every week, but it's worth quoting every week. And I delivered to you as of first importance, Paul said. This is the most important thing in the world. And see, this ties in when a man gets serious about Christ. Because when you understand the most important thing in the world, it'll change your life. I deli- Let's just read it. I want you to see this, because we're coming up here on Easter very quickly. I remember years ago in another city, they had a religion page back. They had a newspaper. Do they have newspapers still? I think they do. They're hanging on for dear life. But, and they had a religion page, and I'm reading the religion page this, this Saturday before Easter Sunday, and they had, like, interviews, a full-page deal with four pastors in town, maybe five, all on the same page, short snippets, their pictures, full-page thing. And just a brief thing, what, what is the resurrection to you? And in essence, only one out of the five guys, well, let's put it this way, four out of the five said, in so many words, well, you can't take it literally. Later, this, I just thought of this, a year later in that t- city, the, the B- Billy Graham had a crusade, and um, I with another guy, we were co-chairing the follow-up committee, so the people that would make decisions for Christ, and you know, they'd meet with someone and they'd fill out a little decision card, and then we would meet the next day and all these different churches were represented. And what was, it was kind of interesting because I remember, I remember one afternoon and different guys would be there, at different, different, different pastors in different churches. You didn't know it. But these, uh, this one guy was there and, uh, oh, good to see you. Where are you from? And he told me the name of his church. Well, his pastor was one of the guys, was one of the four who said, uh, it wasn't a little resurrection. So we're going through these, and, you know, these people live here, and here's a follow-up. And this guy says, oh, I'll take that one. And I said, no, you won't. <laughs> he said, what? I said, no, you don't get any. <laughs> yeah, no soup for you. <laughs> That's, you're two for two, man. You're rolling tonight. I need to take you on the road with me. <laughs> What a, what a spiritual gift you have. This is amazing. It's just coming out. Yeah, no, the guy said, oh, I'll take that. I said, no, you won't. I mean, it just popped out of my head. Why, why would I give you this? You guys don't even believe the gospel. What do you, really, I mean, what are you doing here? Nothing like ecumenicism. But hey, listen, it's not about unity, it's about truth. If you don't believe the truth, there's no unity. Where am I going? I actually have notes. I don't ever read them. I never read them. Hebrews 14. I'll never live that down. That's from last week. No, that, that's going to be with me for a while. Where am I going? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 
and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Come on. Come on. Well, watch this. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You know what's interesting? None of these people were recanted. And, and some of these people died, for, uh, a number of these people actually died for their faith, and they didn't recant. There's one of the things Chuck Colson said in his book, Born Again. You know, when Colson became a believer, most Christians didn't believe it. They just believe, this guy's smart and this guy's slick. And, uh, you know, he's no dummy. He didn't want to go to jail. So, you know, he's, suddenly he's into this Christian thing. Some of you guys remember this. I mean, when I heard it, I thought, come on. And in his book, Colson talked about the fact that... Uh, one of the things he couldn't get over, he said, you know, the gospel is about the, the, the death of Christ. He, he died for our sins. He paid for our sins. And then he was buried, and then he rose on the third day. And he said, you know, throughout the years, in fact, they actually paid soldiers. They paid men to say they took his body. They, they paid them to say it's a conspiracy. And what Colson said, he said, uh, he said, you know, uh, that's, I find that fascinating. They say it's a conspiracy. He says, you know, I know a little bit about conspiracies. <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. Yeah, you know, there's this thing called Watergate. And what happens in a conspiracy is that everybody agrees, yeah, we're all going to say the same thing. And then they get you in a room by yourself, and you find out what you're facing, and then what do you do? Oh, you plea bargain. You turn state's evidence. You see? If you can walk without jail time, you tell the truth. He said, you know what's interesting? None of these guys plea bargained. Because they saw the risen Christ. They saw him. They knew. They knew. either true or it isn't. And Paul goes on and basically he says, he, you know what he says? He basically says that if the resurrection is, isn't true, we're a bunch of fools and we've been conned. Look at verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because we believed a lie if he didn't come out of that too. But see, he did. And when a guy gets a hold of this, it changes your life. You're regenerated. When a guy gets serious about life, when a, guy gets, when a guy gets serious about Christ, everything changes. That's number one. Number two, 
when a man gets serious about Christ, he begins to build his life on the rock. Long sentence. When a man gets serious about Christ, he then begins to build his life on the rock. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mountain is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus summed up this sermon by talking about the two foundations. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Acts on them. Not just hearers of the word, but doers, as James said. Uh, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And by the way, he built his house on what? On the rock. On the rock, okay? And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall. For it had been founded on the rock. All right, now watch this. 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Before we come to know Christ, we're building on the wrong foundation. Before we come to know Christ, we're working hard, we're busting our tails, but we're building on sand. And when the storms of life come, it all goes down. But when Christ comes into our life, what happens is everything changes, including the foundation, and we begin to build on solid rock. And see, here's what happens. When you get serious about Christ, and see, this happens with some guys as early in life. Some guys, it happens you know, and they're just getting going in adulthood. Some guys, it happens at midlife. Some guys, it happens in their 50s or 60s. It, or later. Or later. Whenever it happens, uh, everything changes. And oftentimes, we come to know Christ, and we think, oh, man, I wish this had happened earlier, and which is understandable from our perspective. But you see, what's important is that it's happened. And so now what we do is we start building on the right foundation. And when you start building, when you start building on the rock, watch this, here's what happens. You become a rock. You become a rock. When I was in high school, there was a group. They were dynamite. They were called the Temptations. Boom. And let's once again, let's stand <laughs> because I've got sunshine on a cloudy day when it's cold outside. One of the great hymns of the faith. <laughs> they were a great group. And My Girl was probably the most famous song. They had another song that really had a catchy beat. And when you're a kid, a lot, of the stu- a lot of the songs we like, we don't even know what they're saying. But they had a song called Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. 
And I don't think I ever listened to the words of that or got the words until years and years and years and years later. You know what that song's about? It's about a father who wasn't a rock. It's about a father who was inconsistent. It's about a father who wasn't trustworthy. It's about a father who had no integrity and who could not be trusted and was not trustworthy. That's what that song's about. It's really a tragic song. It's a very sad song. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Proverbs chapter 20. And, and as you're going to Proverbs chapter 20, I'm going to give you a, a third principle. And what I've done here, I told you I was going to give you four principles. You remember that? But what's happened is I've already taken my first, one of my principles, I won't tell you which one, but I've, I've cut it in half, and so now we're at five principles. <laughs> I, I just love being creative on the fly. Uh, so like we're changing the transmission here at 65 miles an hour. But the second principle that I gave you was when a man gets serious about Christ, what's the, what's the second one I gave you? begins to build his life on the rock. Yeah. Um, here's the third principle. When he begins to build his house on the rock, not only does he become a rock, he becomes a role model. These are long phrases. So when he begins to build on the rock, not only does he become a rock, he becomes a role model. Why? Because he's a different man than he used to be. He used to be a rolling stone. He used to be inconsistent. He was a hard man to trust because he wasn't trustworthy. He was all over the map. He was this, he was this, he was this, he was this. But Christ comes into his life. The man has changed from the heart, there's been a heart change. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our behavior, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. When God changes our hearts, when he changes our hearts and our minds and our wills, we're different. We're now different men. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So we're new. So you see, a guy who was unstable is in the process now of becoming stable. There's a process of growth him here. Uh, it says in Ephesians, let him who steals, steal no longer. We begin to tell the truth instead of being uh, lying every time our, our, our mouth opens. Why? Because there's a change. There's a heart change. Christ is in my life. Okay. So what happens when I build on the rock? Because of what's happening, I become a rock. I'm not all over the map. I become stable because I'm in Christ, and when I become stable, now I actually become a role, a role model. That's where I came up with that title for that last chapter, Rock and Role Model. Um, we hear a lot about role models. We talk about role models. Um, let me give you two names, Dennis Rodman and Howard Stern. <laughs> now, those guys, you got to feel... I did a little research on those guys when I did Anchorman. Um, 
they're very rebellious guys. They're profane. They're unpredictable. They love attention. They're just all over the map. I did a little research on both of them. Um, in 1998, um, Dennis Rodman had not seen his father in 30 years. His dad walked out when he was a little boy. He hadn't seen his dad in 30 years. Papa was a Rolling Stone. I was able to track down some information on his father, and as of 98, his father lived in the Philippines, and his dad had two wives. And by those two wives, his father had 15 children. And the man had fathered, in 1998, a total of 27 children. And according to a recent statement in Newsweek, he stated his life goal. He said, I'm shooting for 30. I'm shooting for 30 kids. Not that I would father them, not that I would raise them, not that I would be there for them, not that I would train them and teach them and discipline and love them and be stable for them. I'm just shooting for 30. Well, that explains some things. Howard Stern did an interview years ago, and in the interview he said this. It's actually quite vulnerable. He said, I have never had, he said, I will never have a lot of self-esteem. Uh, I don't feel very good about myself. I still have an inferiority complex. The way I was raised, my father was always telling me I was a piece of expletive. I think I'll go to my grave not feeling very positive about myself or that I'm very, very special. My mother used to tell me how special I was. Every time I hear my mother's voice going, you are the most special little boy in the world, I hear my father going, you expletive, expletive, you are nothing but a piece of expletive. That explains a lot about Howard Stern. Uh, these men did not grow up in a Proverbs 20, verse 7 home. Let's look at Proverbs 20, verse 7. simply says this, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. That's it. A righteous man who walks in his integrity. Now, you're taking the whole of Scripture. This isn't a self-righteous man. This is a man who trusts in the Savior. This is a man who has gotten serious about the Lord God because the Lord God has done a work in his heart and in his life. Uh, the Bible tells us that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. We are clothed in his righteousness. And uh, we are given his spirit. And we begin a process of growth. And what God does is, and what the Lord does is, he takes men, and as we've said this many times, he takes us from immaturity to maturity, and he takes guys who are just, you know, we've, we've train-wrecked our lives, and here and here and here, 
And then we call out to him, and now, and now he begins to make us and to conform us into the image of Christ. It's a very slow process. Uh, but men who had no integrity and couldn't be trusted, see, something happens, and now it's becoming apparent as time goes by that, well, he actually means what he says. And he actually is doing what he said. That's different. Yeah, it's different. Why? Well, because Christ is in him now. You see, he's a new man. He's a new creature. And, and what's happening, he is learning as he follows Christ, and, and behavior changes are starting to come out of his life, and attitudinal changes. Uh, you'll know them by their fruits. I heard that quoted this week in a political setting. I thought it was very refreshing because it's true. You know them by their fruits. And when the Lord comes into a man's life, there's going to be some fruit that's different from what you had before. So here is a guy, a righteous man, who walks in his integrity. Did he always walk in integrity? Probably not. No. He was a sinner. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when the Lord comes into our lives, we're changed. And suddenly what happens is, because of this change, there's, we, we start to observe, we start to grow in, in telling the truth. And in, in we, we say something and we work very hard to, to, we really are aware that I want to do what I said I would do. If I make a promise, I want to do everything I can do to fulfill, fulfill that promise. Because there's so many broken promises in the past. You see, this is the work of God. This is the work of God, and he gets the glory, and he gets the credit. But a man who walks in his integrity. Sometimes you'll read about an old bridge being condemned or an old building being condemned because there's no integrity. It won't hold up. Um, in integrity, uh, here's another, a synonym is congruency. Uh, when, when, when something is congruent, it means all the, all the pieces add up. They fit together, you see. And as God is working in our lives, and we're following Christ now, and now we're building on his foundation, and I'm not all over the map, but I, I, as, as I'm in Christ, I'm becoming a rock, and I'm stabilized. And, and now, as I'm stabilized and following Christ, and he's changing me, and I'm in his word, and, and, and learning the scriptures, and with other men who want to know the Lord— What's happening? I'm getting stable. Well, at the same time, I'm becoming a role model at the same time. You see? Because what does Romans 12 say? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what's happening now. And so it comes out, and, and what's happening is, as I'm building on Christ, I'm becoming this rock, and I'm becoming this positive role model, and this integrity and congruency is occurring in my life. Now watch this. A righteous man who walks it in his integrity, and it doesn't matter if you start at 25 or 35 or 95. You see, sometimes it's such a glaring change, we think, man, all those years are wasted. But it's such a glaring change that the focus is not on the past, it's on what's happened. You see. It's miraculous. You, you've seen it. You've seen what I'm talking about. 
a righteous man who walks in, in his integrity, watch this, how blessed are his sons after him. Why? Why? It says they're blessed. Why? Because he left them a lot of money. It's not what it says. He left them a huge portfolio. He left them... No, because <laughs> he was a rock and he was a role model of how to live your life as a God-fearing man who loves Christ. What a legacy to give. They are blessed. Even when he dies, they're blessed. Because his influence and his modeling of a man who followed Christ that's still there. He's gone. That's still with them. It's still in their minds. Uh, uh, Roger, we, we've talked before about your father. I just see you sitting down here. And we, we've had several conversations about your dad. What, what a man he was who loved Christ and who modeled this to Roger and his brothers and sisters. I mean, Roger still talks. How old are you, Roger? 103? Roger's 77. He still talks about his father. And how long has your dad been with the Lord? Uh, died in he died in 95. See, that's what I'm talking about. And, and his sons and daughters know about his father. And now the next generation, see, that's what we're talking about. A man who walked, a righteous man who loved Christ and walked with integrity, how blessed. You see? He's still influencing, and he's been gone since 95. This is what we're talking about. What number am I on? Anybody know? One guy is saying four. I hear five. Yeah. Here's the next one. Uh, we're open to all viewpoints in here, so you come up with a number. We want you to be personally free and have the right to, to number this the way you see fit. Okay? This is a postmodern Bible study. Um, the next principle is this. When a man becomes a rock and a role model, he also becomes an anchor. An anchor. Why would I say he becomes an anchor? Because he, because of what's happened in his life now, he is going to stop the family drifting, drifting. Um, we look at what's going on in our country, and man, Mary and I were talking last night at dinner. And we're on the same Bible reading schedule. She said, you're reading Jeremiah, right? And I said, yeah. And we just looked at each other. That's where we are. We're right there, guys. Jeremiah is us. What he spoke to, his nation, Judah, it's where we are. If you're paying attention... You know we're living under tyranny. 
That's where we are. Now, it's not full and complete, but it's tyranny nonetheless. You know it and I know it. We have leaders who think they're above the law. Uh, you know, the whole concept of the three branches of government, our founding fathers, they found it in Isaiah based on who God is. It's another story. But you see, what, what's, what's... It grieves us what's, what we see happening. Um, any, anybody on your street picking up their family and moving to Cuba? I don't know anybody moving to Cuba. I mean, it's, it's in the Caribbean. They got nice beaches. They got all these classic cars. <laughs> I mean, you, you go to car shows to see this stuff, man. But there's a reason it's all 56 Chevys and 54 Fords. There's a reason. The reason nobody's moving to Cuba is because they have a different foundation than we were built on. But see, what's happened to us is we've drifted. Uh, Judah drifted from the Lord God. We've drifted from the Lord God. This is why we're going, this is, this is, and, and the drift is, the current's picking up. Um, I would say this. Uh, we, we talked to Dennis Rodman and Howard Stern. They're both products, in my mind, of what I call drifting families. When a father is not building on the foundation of Christ, when he's not building on the rock, when he's not a rock, well, he's not a role model. And you've got no one at the helm. You've got no one steering the ship in the right direction. So a family drifts. Um, here's how I defined a drifting family. A drifting family is a family without an anchor. The father is the anchor of the family, and when fathers leave or when fathers continually degrade their wives and children, the family begins to drift. When a family begins to drift, because it has lost its anchor, it can quickly begin to produce children who are insecure, self-conscious, emotionally starved, and without a moral compass. This is why God so, so, says so much about fathers, and this is why God wants to get a hold of fathers and grandpas, you see? We really are key. We really are pivotal. Joel Aldrich said years ago, all of God's people are equally precious, but not all of God's people are equally strategic. Men are strategic. Husbands are strategic. Fathers are strategic. Grandpas are strategic. Um, These massive aircraft carriers, when they get in a port, you want to make sure they're anchored. Do you not? Because you don't want those suckers drifting. Um, I did a little research on the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, the USS Eisenhower is from keel to mast, the size of a 22-story building. It has a flight deck that comprises four and a half acres. It carries over 6,000 sailors. 
It is a floating city. It also has two anchors. One anchor won't do it. The Eisenhower anchors each weigh 60,000 pounds. Each anchor is attached to a chain that weighs 665,000 pounds. So just the chain, 665,000 pounds. And that chain stretches to a full length of 1,082 feet. <coughs> now catch this. Just one link in that huge chain, just one, weighs 365 pounds. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because throughout Scripture, you see an emphasis, catch this, on family chains. They're called genealogies. You ever get revved up and you decide, yeah, I'm going to read through the Bible, or I'm going to read through, at least, man, I'm going to read through the New Testament. I've never done it before. And so, you, that's a good thing. Great. So you get all pumped up. You go to bed early on New Year's Eve. You know? You got your new Bible. You got your yellow marker and your pen and your notebook. You're ready. You're all pumped. And you turn to Matthew 1. You're so excited. Five in the morning. And you're looking at a genealogy. And you get about, and begat, and he begat, and he begat, and you're in a coma. Right? You ever hit a genealogy and you go, oh. And we think to ourselves, this is so boring. You know, actually, genealogies are not boring. Uh, in fact, a lot of you guys have spent, one of the things that's happened since the internet, there's been a, uh, an explosion of research into family genealogies. And you can, yeah, Ancestry.com. You can find stuff that wasn't even available. It was in some remote, now it's online. And there's somebody in your family, it's probably some crazy uncle that lives in Idaho somewhere, and all he does is he's compiled all this stuff and all this information, and he's in it, and, you're, and, and, and every time you get something from somebody in your family on this genealogy, you, you, you open up and you throw it in the trash. No, you don't. What do you do? You start pouring over it because it's fascinating. See, genealogies are not boring. What is boring is someone else's genealogy. <laughs> now, the genealogies in Scripture are there for a reason, and the Matthew genealogy as well as the other genealogy in Christ is very important because, you see, it demonstrates to us that Christ was born of a virgin. He did not have a physical father, therefore he was not tainted with sin. Therefore, he could go to the cross and have no sin because he had no sin nature. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. See, theologically, that is very, very significant and profound. If he had a sin nature, he couldn't have died for our sins. He was born of a virgin. These gene There's not a wasted word in here, in the Scriptures. Genealogies are important, but genealogies, you know what they are? They're just a long chain. They're a family chain. And, and maybe what's happened, you look back over your family and your family history, and, and, and some of you guys are saying, yeah, I'm the first guy in my family to come to Christ. Then guess what? 
in God's grace and mercy, you're the guy who gets to new, who gets to put a new link in your family chain. That's never been there before. Isn't that something? Because if you're the first guy to come to Christ in generations in your family, a lot of time you'll hear other guys talk about, oh, yeah, my dad and my grandpa were believers and all this, which is wonderful. Man, I wish I had that. Well, you don't. I've talked about my family and my dad's influence on me and my, my dad's dad's influence on him, but you see, it was my grandpa who was the guy who put the first link in the generation on my dad's side. Someone had to put, God worked in his life. He was a product of God's grace. It wasn't there before. And if you're the first guy, what an honor. What an honor. Because you see, this involves generations. Now, now we have done Deuteronomy 6 before, but let's just flip over there very quickly. Okay? What I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say to you, um, what I'm trying to say to you is your life counts. Uh, it, it really counts. And it counts for bigger than just what you're dealing with this week and what's on your plate and you're trying to handle and, 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 and navigate and make good decisions and all this. But our lives are much bigger than just the 70, 80 years we've got on the earth. If you go to Deuteronomy 6, I want to show you just a little bit of the family chain here, how, how this works. How many times have we read this? They're, they're going into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River. Remember, then they're going to do the memorial stones. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But they were, they were in slavery for 400 years. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're finally going to go into the promised land, and they're going to establish a new civilization, if you will. So Moses says in 6 of Deuteronomy, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them, there it is again, in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now watch this. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. There are three links in a generational chain. And as I said a couple weeks ago, we often think we raise our kids and we've done our job. This says it's you and your son and your grandson. It's you and your granddaughter. Uh, It's you and your daughter and your granddaughter. You see, there are three links right there in the chain that we are to influence, that we are to lead. For them, that we are to be that rock and we are to be that role model and we are to be that anchor and to help keep them from drifting. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. The, the pull of the current away from God and away from Christ and away from the Word of God, the current has never been stronger for these kids. Never. Uh, and, and, and I'll say this to you. When I do the math on you and your son and your grandson, okay? Now, I just had a new grandson born. I'm 64. Let's say he lives to be 80. Okay? Now, I don't know when I'm out of here, but here's what I'm trying to say to you. You take you and your son and your grandson, and you take the number of years you, you live on the earth, and then you have a son, and then you have a grandson, and your grandson until... See, you know what I'm saying there? You've got at least 100 years there, do you not? 
you got probably more easy. But let's just say 100 years. So when I read Deuteronomy 6 and I put that math, I, I put that into the equation, you see, this is where I get we're to anchor our families in Christ for the next 100 years. I get that right out of this. Now, when you hear that, I mean, oh, man, whoa. You mean I'm, whoa, whoa, you're telling me I'm supposed to anchor my family in Christ for the next 100 And, you know, you're thinking, man, I'm just trying to get through the week. I'm just trying to return emails. In other words, that's kind of a heavy load to drop on somebody. It's your job to anchor your family for the next 100 years. But, and that can be overwhelming and say, man, I just can't, I can't even conceive of that. I can't even handle it. How, how would I ever do that? Can I tell you how you would do that? By following Jesus today. That's how you do it. It's just today. Christianity is daily. A man must take up his cross daily and follow we don't walk around thinking the next 100 years, you can't, you, can't, you can't see that far, you can't think that far. But here's the fact of the matter. As I'm following Christ today, there are implications. There are, um, well, you know what I call it? Here's what I call it. I, I think God is such a great God. He loves to bless families. He loves to bless, he loves to bless families. He loves to bless generations of families. Os Guinness talks about up through the generations. Uh, his way, way, way back. Great, 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 great. One of his grandfathers was the guy who started the Guinness Brewery. And I've told you this story because gin had taken over Dublin, Ireland. And people were just, I mean, actually going blind from There were orphans everywhere. I mean, it, this city was, it was just, it was horrific. The disease, the decay, the, the, the children born blind, the disease. And, and he said, dear God, what can I do with this inheritance? And he was led to start a brewery. And, and, and some would say, well, that, yeah, but it has alcohol. Yeah, but not like gin. And you need some alcohol to kill the germs in the water back then so you don't get cholera. And he loaded it with B vitamins. He was a godly man, and one of his sons married a young woman whose husband had been killed in a duel, and she didn't know Christ, and she was about to kill herself. She wondrously came to Christ. And after she came to Christ, she prayed for the next 10 generations of her family, that they would all come to know the Lord. Nos Guinness is one of them. God loves to bless families. He does. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see? Um, see, how, did, how does that work? Um, we, I, I almost hesitate to use this term, but I want to use it. Uh, I think what God does when, when we follow the Lord his blessing, he loves to bless us. And, and there was a verse where he talks about blessing us to the thousandth generation, and I can't pull it out of my head. It just popped into my head. He loves to bless generations. And he does it just out of his grace and out of his mercy and out of his kindness. It's a good thing when, they, when, when you think of it, pray for your future generations. Pray for them. You, you got a little grandson, you got a little granddaughter, pray that they will be regenerated early. 
Pray for them. Lord, redeem them. Bring them, bring them to you. And, and Lord, I even pray for their kids. Just, just asking, just asking, just asking. He, he, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Because see, he's such a great God, he not only saves us, but he'll save next generations. And you say, well, Steve, I've got a son or a daughter. They're so far away from Christ right now. Yeah, but they're still alive. Yeah, but they're not with the, they're not with the Lord right now. Yeah, yeah, but, it's, but the last chapter hasn't been written, has it? So you keep following Christ. You keep praying. Sometimes promises aren't fulfilled until after we're dead. You see that in Scripture. I, what I'm trying to say, have you guys heard of this principle called compound interest? It's, it, usually we find out about it too late. <laughs> it's a staggering principle. And w- what happens is they'll show you a chart that if you put this much money away each month, and then they'll show you. And, and it's like you keep putting it away, and it's kind of boring, it's kind of dull, and, you know, you just keep putting it away, you keep putting it away, you keep putting it away, and they, and, and they show you the level of return. And, you know, five years, seven years, nine years, it's kind of boring, it's kind of dull, it's not real exciting. You know, and you just keep doing it, and you know, 13 years, 15 years, it's just pretty much flat. And, and, just, and, and then about, and then all of a sudden, about 19, 20, about 21, 22 years, all of a sudden that flat line, all of a sudden that sucker starts going up, and then it goes off like a jumping rocket ship out of Cape Canaveral. Why? Because it's compounded. See where you are right now. You say, I look at my family, and I'm not seeing anyone in my family knowing the Lord. You stay faithful. Ask him to save at the right time. And, and, and see, th- this isn't about earning your way to heaven or anything like that. It's just the sheer grace of God and asking him as he has been gracious to you and you have received mercy and kindness that you didn't deserve. As you receive grace, Lord, would you do it for my kids? And would you do it for their kids? And would you do it for their kids? And you may die never seeing the fruit. But you never know what God's going to do. There is a kind of bamboo that is extremely expensive that is grown in Malaysia. And you clear your ground, and you plant the little shoots. You carefully water it and fertilize it, keep the weeds away, work in the hot sun. You watch it every day, cultivate it, and at the end of a year, there has been no growth. The second year, you water, you fertilize, you keep the weeds out, faithfully, and at the end of the second year, there is no growth. The third year, a lot of of men quit. The third year, you're back at it every day, cultivating, pulling weeds, watering, fertilizing at the appropriate time, and at the end of three years, no growth. Fourth year, same drill, every day in the hot sun, 
And at the end of four years, there's not a half inch of growth. Year five, not many men left. No fruit, no results. Year five, same drill, hot sun, watering, cultivating, fertilizing. And at the end of five years, the bamboo grows 90 feet in 30 days. That's what you call compound interest. The creator of the universe came up with that. And if he can do that in bamboo, why couldn't he do it in your family? Let's pray. Father, we get discouraged because we see those in our families that we love who are away from you as we used to be away from you, and it grieves our hearts and it grieves our spirits. But as you brought us to you, would you bring them at the right time? We're just men. We can't carry the weight of the next hundred years. That's your weight. But what a gracious God you are that as we just simply follow you and are recipients of your grace and get up every morning and there's new mercy every day and there's new grace and there's new kindness and there's new, well, it's just new. It's a new start every day. And Lord, as we follow you each day, you pour out your favor. You pour out your favor not only in us, but these little ones come along and as we tell them about what you've done, you love to pour out your favor on them. We die, we leave, they become adults, they have kids and down through the generations. Heaven will be great. We won't know what you have done till we get there. We trust you. We ask you to do what we don't deserve. You've already done it. Would you continue to do it in our families? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.